You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Tonight's reading will be Genesis chapter 3 and can be found on page 2 of the Pew Bibles. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He had said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree tree in the middle of the garden and and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings of for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking to the garden and in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put a enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heels. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it, and all the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Until you return to the ground, since you were taken f- for the dust you are, and the dust you will return. 
Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all the living. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side the garden of Eden, cherub and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Or it's now time for our kids' group activities. Um, so if you are a kid, I'd invite you to pick up your Bible, um, one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, um, and go out into the foyer. And if you're not sure where to go, I'll be there in the foyer to direct you to where you're going. Awesome. Tim's going to come up and give us a message. Thanks, Ella. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name's uh, Tim and I'm the Senior Minister here at St John's and uh, we're continuing today uh, this series that we've been doing through the term where we're thinking about uh, who are we? Who am I as a human being? Who am I as a person? What does the Bible have to say about our humanity and how we are to understand ourselves? Uh, Now, I was at a training session a few years back and it was one of those interactive sessions where you got asked a series of questions and you had to throw your hand up. Uh, so I'm going I'm to try this out on you um, with, with one question that's sort of pertinent to today's talk. Uh, so you have to choose, right? You've got to pick one or the other. Do you think people are basically good or do you think people are basically bad? That's your choice, okay? Uh, hands up if you think people are basically good. Hand up if you think people are basically bad. There you go. When, uh, when I did this in the training session, it was about 50-50 split right down the middle, and everyone looked at each other who'd given a different answer and sort of went, what? What is wrong with you? Right? Um, and look, through this series of Who Am I, if uh, you were just listening to the things that we had to say so far from the Bible, you would think, well, people are basically good. We're created by God. We've got a loving God who formed us with his hands and made us for relationship with himself. We're made in the image of God, so human beings are made to reflect God's character and he gives us real responsibility to look after the world that he's made. Last week we talked about the fact that we're beautifully complex human beings. We've got thoughts and we've got emotions We've got consciences, we've got physicality, and God has integrated all of these aspects of our personhood into one whole. So these are all wonderful things that focus on the way that God has made us, and they're good things. But we've got to take that optimistic and positive picture that we've been looking at over these three weeks, and today we've got to add a bit of a a stark dose of reality to it. Because we've got to add into the picture the fact that as human beings we are also fallen people. 
people who haven't fully lived up to all God created us to be. Today we're focusing on this story that Tash has read to us from Genesis chapter 3, and it gives another side to ourselves that we have to be honest about as we think about who we are as human beings. So uh, Genesis 3, if you've got it there, I'd love you to have your Bibles open. It's on page 2 of the Bible. We're still really near the beginning. And Genesis 2, the chapter that comes before what's been read to us today, and Genesis 3, they fit together as a single story. So in Genesis 2, we found out that God has planted this garden, the Garden of Eden, and he's placed the man and the woman in the garden to look after it, to care for it, to work the soil. And the garden is full of trees. There's a whole stack of trees in this garden, and people can, uh, the man and the woman can eat freely from the trees in the garden. There's no shortage of food for them to eat. But there's two trees in particular that are named in chapter 2. There's the tree of life, and then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you're not told much about the tree of life in chapter 2, but at the end of chapter 3, the end of our reading that we've had, we see that after Adam and Eve disobey God, they're separated from the tree of life. They're not able to eat from it anymore. And so death comes because they're separated from this tree. So presumably beforehand, they could eat from the tree of life, and it was actually eating from this tree which gave them ongoing life. Regarding the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God has given a specific command about that. Here's what he has said in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. For Adam and Eve to eat from this tree that God has commanded them not to eat from would be to say, do you know what? We know more than you do, God, and we will be the ones who decides what is good and what is evil. We will be the determiners of moral judgments. We will decide what is in and what is out. To say, we know more than you, God, about what is good and what is evil. Enter this crafty serpent who comes into the story at the start of our chapter. Now, this is not just some clever animal that comes along and talks to them. Uh, later on in the Bible, it becomes clear that this is none other than uh, Satan or the devil uh, who is opposed to God and is seeking to tempt and deceive them. And he starts by saying to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now, do you see what he's doing here? He's suggesting that God is stingy. God's a killjoy. That God doesn't want them to have any fun or any good thing. See, God hasn't said you can't eat from any tree in the garden, has he? He's given them stacks of trees to eat from. There's food galore in the garden. He's placed one restriction. There is one tree that you can't eat from. And the serpent focuses on the one restriction and kind of makes out like God doesn't let them do anything at all. Fortunately, Eve fights back and she says, no, 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 God didn't say that. So then the serpent comes right out and contradicts the word that God has spoken 
The serpent says that uh, God has said that if they eat from the fruit of this tree, they will surely die. The serpent says, you won't certainly die. So he's going against what God has spoken to them. He's undermining the very thing that God has said. He's saying, God's a liar. You can't trust what his word says. And then he goes a bit further and he says, you know, actually what God's trying to do here, he's trying to guard his space. God knows that if you eat that fruit on that tree, that you will be like God. You'll become like him. You'll be equal to him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. Now, we know, don't we, that Adam and Eve are already like God because they've been made in the image of God and in the likeness of God. God's already made them like him to reflect his good character. They are already like God. But the serpent wants them to go for more than that. Don't be satisfied just being made in the image of God. Determine your own destiny. You decide what is right and wrong. Don't let God tell you about it. Make up your own mind. You, you can be God. Now let's just pause for a second there and let's reflect on the nature of temptation as we see it here because it is... It is absolutely familiar to us as we experience temptation, I think. Temptation involves doubting the goodness of God, doubting the trustworthiness of God, and so being tempted to put ourselves in the place of God. Do we really believe that God has our best interests at heart? Is God holding back good stuff from us. So when God says things in the Bible about how we should use our money and our material possessions, when he tells us to be generous to other people, not to hold it all back for ourselves, but to use it for uh, ministry in the world, to give it so that the good news about Jesus can go forward, or using it to help those who are poor or in need, is God just being restrictive and holding back from us? Is it not really good to use our possessions in that way? Or when uh, God in his word tells us about how to conduct our relationships with other people, when he says, don't hate people who hate you, but actually love your enemies. Wow, that's really challenging stuff. Is that, is that possibly good for us? Is God setting us up for failure there? Or when he tells us how to conduct our sexual relationships, it just feels so restrictive, God, that you would place limitations on us like that. Can't we just do whatever we want? Maybe God isn't actually good, and this is, this is bad for us to restrict ourselves in this way. Or any number of things that we read in the Bible where God instructs us. We can be tempted to think, maybe God isn't good. Maybe he isn't telling me a way of life that is the best for me and the most fulfilling. And so then we get tempted to sort of doubt whether God's actually spoken true words when we read them in the Bible. Maybe God didn't actually mean it quite like that. Maybe we can reinterpret what God has said here. Keep a bit more for ourselves, be a bit more greedy, or do that thing that it seems to say that we shouldn't do. See, the serpent would say, 
yes, God isn't really that good. He's being stingy towards you. And you can't really believe what God's word says. And the world around us says the same sort of thing. Gee, Christians are so repressed. They're not able to do anything. What a terrible way of life. And you can't believe words from God in an ancient book that are like 2,000 or more years years old. How can you believe that stuff? And so we're tempted to actually doubt God, doubt his goodness, doubt his trustworthiness, and decide that we will make decisions for ourselves, thank you, putting ourselves in the place of God. Actually, the temptation to sin hasn't changed. What Eve faced in the garden here is exactly what we face each and every day. Is God actually a good God who wants the best for me? Is God trustworthy? Is what he says in his word true? And who has the right to decide moral judgments here? Is it God or is it me? Here's what Eve should have said to the snake. Are you out of your tiny serpentine head? God loves me. God isn't holding good stuff back from me. What are you talking about? God loves me and blesses me and look at all the good stuff that he's given me. And, you know, God's not a liar. When God says something, I absolutely believe what he says. I'm going to trust him and not trust you. Well, that's what she should have said. But the fruit just looks so good. (laughs) And she took it and she ate it. And Adam did too. And humanity was changed forever. Uh, The impact on humanity is immediate. There's shame. Uh, Adam and Eve suddenly realise that they're naked. This has never been a problem before. They've been quite happy to be naked and vulnerable with each other, but now they're ashamed and they try and cover themselves up. They're afraid. They're afraid of God, which is a totally new experience for them. Why would you be afraid of God? They've walked with God, talked with God, but now they're hiding from God. They're afraid of him because of what they've done. There's blame. Everyone's pointing the finger at everyone else. Adam says it's Eve's fault. Eve says it's a serpent's fault. As long as someone else goes down and not me, I don't care. There's blame, left, right and centre. There's pain, there's increased pain in childbirth, there's hard, uh, work is hard as Adam tries to work the land, there's relational pain, they're going to start competing with each other and fighting with each other uh, rather than loving and serving each other. All of these are areas of great joy and personal fulfilment in life and now they're filled with pain and frustration. And finally there's death. There's this separation, as I said, from the tree of life, the thing that gave them ongoing life. God reminds them that they're made of dust, we're made of the stuff of the earth, and that they will return to it. God's word actually is true. God's commands are good commands, and God is God. God has the right to determine moral judgments, and he has the right to judge when people disobey his commands. And it impacts not only Adam and Eve, but it actually spreads to the rest of humankind. That's filled out for us through the rest of the Bible. One verse in particular is helpful just to have a quick look at. Romans 5 verse 12, 
Paul writes this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. All sin, all disobey God, all of us die. God's good creation is now wrecked. It's broken. Humanity has fallen from the position that God had given to them. What's happened since this first sin by Adam and Eve is that within us as humans, there is this inbuilt bias towards sin. Uh, Anyone here ever done sort of lawn bowls, barefoot bowling? Yeah, a few. We're a bit like a lawn bowl now. Lawn bowl thinks to itself, go in a straight line, go in a straight line. You've just got to go in a straight line. But it can't, it it veers, doesn't it? Because it's got a bias in it, a weight in it that takes it one way. And we're like that as human beings. We kind of veer away from God and veer towards sin. We veer in a direction where we kind of do the wrong thing all the time. There's this bias towards sin that's now in us. And, And in the Bible, it uses the language of being fallen or broken in our sinfulness. It's a reality of who we are as human beings. Now, we might ask the question, well, how, how, how deep does this problem go? How bad is it, Doctor, this problem of sin? How deep does it go within me? And Jesus' answer is, it goes right to the heart. Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Sin is not something that is external to us. It's not something that's out there. Sin is not primarily a societal problem before it's an individual problem. Sin is not primarily caused by a lack of education or poverty or ignorance. It actually comes from within people, from our hearts. Now, that's not to say that there aren't structural evils in our society. We can have systems where uh, evil is built into societies and really hurts people and damages people. But it's not external out there. It's actually inside of us. Here's what the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Now you remember from last week that we were talking about the heart and the way that the Bible says that the heart actually contains all of the human faculties within it, biblically speaking. So uh, our thoughts, our emotions, our conscience, our will, all of these, biblically speaking, come from the heart. And when we say that sin affects our heart, it actually impacts all of those different areas. And the Bible uses language to describe this. 
So it talks about the fact that our minds are darkened. You see, I put my hands up to my head rather than to my heart. <laughs> but thoughts, biblically speaking, are generated from the heart. And it, and it speaks about our minds being darkened, which means we don't always think rightly because of sin. We can be arrogant and boast about how rational we are and how intelligent we are, and yet ignore God and reject his teaching. And really smart people do really evil things. Very intelligent scientists build gas chambers for the Nazis. Very smart people today are building weapons which wiping out thousands and thousands of civilians around the world. Our minds are darkened and we use our thinking and our intelligence for evil. The Bible speaks about our consciences being seared. I cooked a barbecue last night. Right? Searing is about putting sort of a piece of meat on the barbecue and it kind of browns off both sides. And if you put your finger on the barbecue, it kind of burns the feeling off the end. And it's a bit like that with our consciences. Our consciences are this alarm system. So if we're doing the wrong thing, our consciences are supposed to say, this, this doesn't feel right. I feel bad about this. I'm doing the wrong thing. But because of our sinful hearts, our consciences are broken. And so the alarm system doesn't always go off when it should. We could be doing the wrong thing, something going against God, and not necessarily be feeling guilty about it. And the more that we persist in an area of sin, if we keep doing the wrong thing, the more we become numb to it and it feels okay the more that we keep doing this wrong thing. I should say too that our consciences trigger the other way as well. Sometimes we feel guilty for things that we shouldn't feel guilty about. And we might feel guilty for things because someone has sinned against us. Someone might have sinned against you, abused you, mistreated you, and you might feel guilty for what happened, and you should not, because you have done nothing wrong, they have sinned against you, but you feel guilty. And that is part of the conscience not necessarily being fully accurate because of sin, but it is their sin against you. You have done nothing wrong. The Bible talks about having rebellious wills. Wills is about the decisions that we make and we can kind of shake our fist at God with the decisions that we make. Uh, harden our hearts, be stubborn to God and decide that I don't care what he says, I'm not going to do it. The Bible also speaks about ungodly desires, that sometimes the desires that come into my heart, the things that I want and yearn for are not good things, they're not the best things for me. Just because I feel something doesn't mean I should do it. Because as well as the good desires that I have within me, there are also ungodly desires that should not be pursued. They are ultimately damaging and they're out of step with what God's plan for me is. The reality of sin, the sad reality, is it affects every single part of us. Now that doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be, right? By God's grace, we're not. And there are levels of evil in the world. Not everyone is sort of an Adolf Hitler or will commit great atrocities. There are levels of evil out there. But the point is that sin affects every bit of us so that there's no bit which is untouched by sin which is 100% trustworthy which might rescue us from this problem. It's not like our minds are untouched and so we can think our way out of the problem. 
It's not like our emotions are untouched, and so if we just follow what we feel, we'll be okay, because sin affects every single part of us. There's no way that there's a part of us which can rescue us. We can't pull ourselves up from the bootstraps and help ourselves out of the problem. What we need is someone to come and help us. If our heart is filled with sin, we need a heart transplant. And because this is a problem that affects all humans, we need a solution that is going to rescue all humans, something that is going to enable anyone in the world to be rescued from this problem of sin. Now, in many ways, this is a pretty depressing talk, isn't it? Um, Talking about sin is never comfortable or easy. But I think it's really important that we have a realistic view of ourselves as we think about who we are as human beings. And there's three key things that I want us to take away. Firstly, I think this biblical picture of our humanity as at one and the same time created good by God in his image and yet at the same time broken and fallen, holding those two things together has incredible explanatory power for making sense of the world and making sense of ourselves. When you look at the news and you see that humans can do some wonderful things, there's great acts of heroism and people do amazing things for other people, and yet at the same time there's great acts of unspeakable evil that happen, how do you make sense of that? I don't know how people who don't have the Bible's view of humankind can actually make sense of the world. I honestly don't know how they do it. Because if you think people are fundamentally good, how do you make sense of when people do the wrong thing? What people tend to do is saying, well, everyone's good except for that person, they're really evil. And then you have these divisions, like people do this with political parties, oh, well, they don't think like, well, they must be really evil. You write people off, because we're all good, so if someone does the wrong thing, then they must be totally evil and, and different to me. But it's not true. All of us have good and evil within us. And it helps us to make sense of the world around us. So we're still all made in God's image, but we don't reflect God as accurately as we should. It's a bit like, you know, these sorts of mirrors at the sideshow which distort the image that we're supposed to be reflecting back to God. There's still good bits there. There's still accurate reflections of God's character, but there's great distortions when people don't behave the way that they should. And... It helps you just understand what's going on in the world and understand what's going on in your own heart when you disappoint yourself by the way that you behave, when you mistreat a friend. It actually helps us to understand. That doesn't mean that I'm completely terrible. I'm still loved by God, created by him in his image, but I'm also broken and I'm also sinful and I stuff up. So it helps us explain the world. We're both good created by God in his image and broken and fallen at the one time. The question I gave you at the beginning, it's a false distinction. The Bible doesn't explain it like that. It talks about created good, but broken and fallen at the same time. The second thing that I want us to to take away is given the reality that we are broken and fallen, we have to be... um, a little bit careful about how much we trust ourselves. One of the key bits of advice that people will give you, you've probably been given this bit of advice yourself, is be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. 
right? It's good. It's about authenticity. It's about exercising your freedom. It's not just going along with uh, the rest of the crowd and being constrained by what other people think. But the trouble is, if we are broken and fallen, and, and not all of us is not all of us is good, should we be ourselves all the time? This is what Brian Rosner, who's the principal of Ridley Theological College, says. What if myself is selfish? After all, the dishonest friend, the greedy workaholic, the malicious gossip, and the abusive spouse, when they behave in character and hurt others, they can all claim that they're being true to themselves. The biggest problem with the slogan is that to be true to yourself... You have to know who you are. And these days, more and more people are unsure of their true identity. Being true to yourself only works if you are being true to the person that God made you to be. Being true to yourself only works if you're being changed and transformed so that you are becoming more like Jesus, who is the true image of God. The more that we are changed by God's Holy Spirit and become more like Jesus, the more we are being true to who God created us to be. And that is what we should be seeking after rather than just doing whatever we feel like doing. The third and last implication. Having a realistic view of ourselves as fallen people, as as broken, as sinful, should mean that we actually cry out to God for help. Once we recognise the extent of the problem, that we can't save ourselves, we can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, that there's no untouched of a part of our heart that might somehow rescue us, and when we realise that actually trying to be self-sufficient and putting ourselves in God's place is not a sign of our maturity as human beings, but actually a key part of the problem, then we've got nowhere else to turn but to fall on our knees before God and say, God, I need your help. And that's the best place for us to be. Because God loves us. And God is a God who is full of forgiveness and grace and mercy. God sent his son Jesus into the world in order to rescue sinful people like you and I. That is the entire mission of Jesus, to actually rescue people whose hearts are full of sin, to offer us forgiveness, to fill us with his Holy Spirit so that he can transform our lives and give us a new start and a new life with him. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. And in communion, we celebrate what Jesus did through his death and resurrection. That Jesus went to the cross to deal with our sin and our brokenness, And his resurrection offers us a new life and a new start. And when we come to communion, we come with empty and open hands. We come saying to God, I've got nothing to bring, but I've come to receive from you. And we receive the bread, which symbolises Jesus' body being broken for us on the cross. And we receive the juice or the wine, which symbolises Jesus' blood, which washes us clean from sin. It's a reminder for us that even though we're sinful and broken, God loves us, he forgives us, and he's given us his son, Jesus, so that we can be in relationship with him. 
So I'm going to start setting up for communion, and Lenny's going to come and lead us in prayer as I do that. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au, or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.